Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, you know uh, where we all are this morning. You know that there are some of us here this morning who are glad to be here, ready to be here who are ready to worship, to hear from you, to be with other people. You know that there are those of us here this morning who are not. Um, We're not sure why we're here, or we're here because that's where we go, or any number of another reasons. And Father, we confess that in a way that doesn't matter because for none of us, for none of us who are here this morning, we will not hear you. We will not know you unless you come to us. And so we ask that you would do that, that you'd meet us where we are, that the words that we just sang together, we would be able to confess is true, that you are our source of true delight. Father, we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. So this summer, our family spent some time in Arizona and in southern Utah. Uh, the main draw for us to be there was to go to the Grand Canyon, but we saw lots and lots of other great things while we were there. Uh, and we stayed in southern Utah in order to be closer to the north rim of the Grand Canyon. And uh, one of the benefits of being there was that we stayed in a town that was right on the edge of the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument. Now this uh, monument is about 1.8 million acres of protected land, and it's really, really remote land. And, and the word on the street is that it's one of the last places in the 48 states to be mapped. Um, And there are lots of of slip canyons in this place, those really narrow canyons that are formed by rushing water, really deep, deep canyons where in some places you can actually touch both sides of the canyon. Uh, They're beautiful, and uh, for me, I have to confess, a little bit scary too. Um, Anyhow, Allison really wanted to hike in one of these slip canyons. And there were lots of tour companies uh, that would take you in one of their four-wheel drives out to a slip canyon so you could hike in it, but they were really, really expensive. 
So Allison decided that it would be better for us to find one that we could um, try to get to ourselves. And so she did. She found a slip canyon that we could hike that looked like it would be okay for the family. The only hitch was that it was about 30 miles out into the wastelands, passable only by dirt roads. But we had this, this vehicle that had enough clearance from the road that we figured this was possible, so we did it. We went. Uh, after getting off of the paved roads, we, we drove for about 15 miles. It took us almost an hour to go those 15 miles, and we came to this junction in the road where there was a sign. We were supposed to turn onto the road where the sign was, and the sign said, road closed 18 miles ahead. Now that was uh, further out than the trailhead that we were looking for, but I, I looked at that sign and I thought, you know, that sign looks kind of old, <laughs> and maybe it's outdated, and the road really isn't closed, so let's go, you know? So I blew right past that sign. Well, we drive another uh, 18 miles, and at 18 miles, we don't see anything. Everything looks fine. But then at 20 miles, we hit another sign. This sign was placed in the center of the road, and this sign just said, Road Closed. Well, you know, I had blown past the first sign with no problem. Took a closer look at the road ahead. It looked pretty fine to me, and I was thinking about going past that sign, but then I noticed handwriting on that road closed sign. There were several entries, all dated to the month prior to when we were there. The first entry said, don't do this unless you're a mountain goat, and then don't do it. Uh, the second handwritten entry said, don't be naive. <laughs> you will not get past. <laughs> and then the third handwritten entry was much more descriptive. It told us that the road had been completely washed out into steep cliffs on either side and that it would take months to get the road fixed. So these handwritten signs were the signs that finally worked. They got my attention. <laughs> I'm really glad that they were there because I might have tried to go around that sign if they weren't. We turned around, we found another slot canyon to hike, and it was great, and we didn't have to risk our lives to get there. And that's what's happening here uh, at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The ending of the Sermon on the Mount is a series of four signs, four signposts. We talked about two of them last week, and we just read the last two of those signs together. Jesus puts up these signs as gracious warnings. They're signposts that people like you and I can use to make sure we are on the right road, the one that leads to life. They're signs that we can use to make sure that we are following along behind Jesus. They're signs to keep us out of danger in the life of faith and to lead us directly into the kind of life that we have been made for. So here's the first sign that we come to this morning. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, if we're being honest, 
and church, I think, is a great place, to be honest. These are deeply, deeply unsettling words. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is talking about what he calls that day. And when he does that, he's borrowing language from the Old Testament prophets to refer to what we often call Judgment Day, the Day of Reckoning. The prophets of the Old Testament talked like this all of the time. Uh, They reminded God's people that there was a day coming where things would not be like they are now. The Old Testament prophets told God's people over and over that there was a day coming where evil and injustice would finally be checked. It would finally, both of those things, would be stopped forever. They reminded God's people that there was a day coming when when things that had been done in the dark would be exposed, when lies would be uprooted to wither in the light of truth. A day is coming, they said, when peace will finally be established on earth and real justice will finally be established on earth forever. Now, on the one hand, the prophets did this to comfort God's people when they were suffering. Right? That makes sense to remind them that their suffering wasn't going to last forever, that there was a day coming when their cries were going to be heard. On the other hand, the prophets did this as a warning to God's people, as a way of calling them to imagine where things might fall for them on that day. Were they in the present living in light of that day? Or were there things that they needed to reckon with in the present to get them ready for that day? Uh, Johnny Cash, the singer, I think as he got older, sounded more and more like one of those old wily wise prophets of the Old Testament. And in one of the last songs that he wrote before he died, he sang, there is a man going round taking names. That is a warning and a comfort. And that's what Jesus is graciously doing here, and he makes it as clear as he can. He is the one going around taking names. On that day, he says, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy and cast out demons and do mighty works in your name? And that's why I think this is profoundly unsettling. It's unsettling to me because these people that Jesus are talking about, they sound like pretty good people. They, they look pretty good. They're pious enough to call them Lord. They do kind, all kinds of great things, things like Jesus has just been talking about doing in the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus says there, day, there is a day coming when he's going to look at them in the eye and he's going to say, depart from me. So I have to ask myself, we have to ask ourselves, who are these people? What's going on here? And while Jesus leaves that question a little open-ended here, it's not like we're left without any guidance trying to figure that out. Of course, the Old Testament prophets talked about this too. I don't think anyone said it more clearly than Isaiah the prophet when he talked about a people who draw near to God with their mouths and honor God with their lips while their hearts are far, far from him. 
That's in Isaiah 29. Nobody really needs a theology degree to understand what he's talking about there. These are people who have substituted a bunch of talk and maybe even pious action for really knowing God. So it's no surprise at all that later in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 15, Jesus quotes Isaiah 29 when he's in this conflict with the religious leaders called the Pharisees. They are, in Matthew 15, really upset at Jesus' disciples because Jesus' disciples are not following this really elaborate washing ritual before they eat. It was a ritual the Pharisees said was necessary in order to remain clean ritually. So they're really upset that Jesus' disciples don't do this really elaborate ritual. Their concern for them would be comic if it weren't so tragic. These religious leaders were were masters of the Lord, Lord thing. (laughs) Did we not wash our hands like experts in your name? (laughs) Aren't all our acts of piety in your name amazing to behold? Isn't our fastidious law-keeping a thing of beauty? And Jesus wants them and us to know, no, it is not. Because you've missed the forest for the trees, those things are not the ultimate thing. The thing that matters the most, Jesus says, is that we know each other. The thing that matters the most is that your heart is with me, and I have it. That's the reason that Jesus gives for saying, depart from me to those folks who look so pious and so good. He says, I never knew you. This is Jesus graciously warning people like you and me. He is reorienting people like us to the ultimate thing, which is to know him and be known by him. And so we have to ask, I have to ask, do I come by Jesus second hand? Or do I really know him? Is the Jesus that I talk about, you know, every Sunday, (laughs) is the Jesus that I talk about, that I hear about, that you all talk about and hear about, is he an inheritance that has come from my parents? Is he an inheritance that I've gotten from my friends? Or do I really know him? Is he just the Jesus of everyone's cultural imagination? And not much more, you know, wise teacher, a sympathetic moral guide, a great example? Is he simply the Jesus floating around out there somewhere, taken for granted, just like the water that I drink every day? You know how that goes, right? I'm baptized, I go to church, I do all kinds of good stuff, stuff that sometimes even looks like the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) I admire Jesus, I like his teaching. Isn't that what matters? And Jesus gets all fiery-eyed and sharp-tongued. And he looks at people like you and me, and he says, No, that is not what matters. What matters is knowing and being known by me.
And knowing Jesus doesn't happen by simply coming into contact with him. It doesn't come by recognizing him or being familiar with him. I mean, I'm familiar with lots of people I don't know. Knowing Jesus and being known by him is unavoidably personal. Knowing Jesus comes by seeing him for who he is. The, who he says he is, the one who offers forgiveness, the one who offers new life, the one who offers peace with God, not out there, not generically, but for me, for me personally. It comes from taking him seriously when he says that his life and death and resurrection and ascension were for me, for my good and forgiveness for my flourishing in new life. It comes from seeing the love of Jesus poured out for me and then following him in repentance and faith. No one can do that for you or for me. We have to do it for ourselves. It is deeply, intimately personal. And to follow Jesus in repentance and faith it is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of knowing him and being known by him. The Apostle Paul gives us a great picture of what that it looks like or sounds like to come to that realization when he describes to his friends in the church at Galatia, he talks about his whole life. He says, this is what my whole life is. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what it sounds like to know Jesus and be known by him. And when we genuinely make a confession like that, we know that we have drawn near to Jesus, not just with our lips, but with our hearts. So now Jesus gives us the last sign in his Sermon on the Mount. This is how Jesus ends it. It is familiar teaching to many who have grown up in the church, lots of us as kids, sang about this in Sunday school. It's the signpost that steers us away from hearing his words, but not doing them. With this teaching, Jesus orients us really back towards our vocation in this world. As we've talked about the last few weeks, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount has painted a picture of this beautiful, visible alternative to living human life in this world. That is our vocation. We are salt. We are light. That's Jesus' words. That is our vocation for the life of the world. And so this signpost points us into it. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds came and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was built on the rock. By contrast, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds beat on that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Jesus underlines the critical necessity of not just hearing what he's saying, not only hearing what he's saying. And honestly, isn't that incredibly easy to do? It's incredibly easy just to be hearers, 
to hear Jesus' teaching and to admire it and to find it fascinating and even forceful and compelling and beautiful or maybe all of those things all at once. But Jesus isn't asking us here to admire his words. He's not asking us to write up a nice theology about it or to compose some kind of philosophy of life around it. Those things are possible. They're good as far as they go. They've all been done, but they all far far less of what Jesus is asking people like you and me to do. It's really simple. He wants us first to hear his words, and then he wants us to do them. He's saying again that following him isn't an exercise that happens in our minds. He's saying that following him looks and tastes and feels and smells and sounds like something. If his words are just popping around in our heads and not turning into flesh and blood action in the world, then something's wrong and the only people we're fooling is ourselves. And I don't know about you, church, but I am glad that Jesus loves me and you enough to warn us about this and to remind us as many times as we need reminded. Because church, when we hear Jesus and do what he says, we become the people that we were created to be, salt and light, for God's glory and for the good of the whole world. And you know what, I, I love this warning, this teaching from Jesus, because it comes with this beautiful promise wrapped in it. It's this clear, beautiful promise. And the promise is not that the rain won't come. The promise is not that the flood will not come. The promise is not that the winds will not beat on us. I mean, if I read Jesus right, that will all probably happen. <laughs> The rain and the wind and the flood will come. This is the narrow way, not in the hard way. The promise is not that our house will be immune from trouble or that it'll grow into some magnificent and beautiful mansion or some pipe dream like that. The promise that Jesus gives to people like us is that when we hear his words and we do them, despite the flood, the wind, the rain, despite the difficulty, sadness, and loss that we experience, despite the very real cost of putting taste and feel and smell on his words in the world, despite all of those things, in the end, Jesus' promise is that we will stand. We will not fall. And church, that is the promised most sweet. That's Jesus preparing us for the good life. The life that we know in our bones we have been made for and that we find deep, lasting, joyful fulfillment in living. And this is Jesus preparing us for what he calls that day. To know Jesus and to be known by him, to hear his words and do them, is to be certain that we will stand on that day. We will be brought safely home. And so when Jesus finishes, the crowds, Matthew tells us, were astonished at his teaching. 
for he was teaching as one who had authority. I mean, whether they believed all that he was saying or bought all of that he was saying or not, they were astonished because he wasn't teaching stuff that was based on someone's opinion of someone else's opinion of someone else's opinion. He was standing on his own two feet and saying these words are the words of God himself. But I want to suggest, church, that as galvanizing as that authority seemed to them, and it must have been amazing, that they hadn't seen anything yet. Jesus had warned them against being a people who had to depart because they were not known by God. But listen, which of them listening that morning or day or whenever it was, which of us listening this morning could ever dream, could ever dream, that Jesus would happily become the unknown one, the abandoned one for us. Jesus' love for people like us is perfectly expressed in the profound scandal of that moment when he realizes he is the one who must depart. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Church, this was for us. Jesus had warned those people against the foolishness of hearing and not doing, but who could have imagined, who listening then or now could ever imagine that Jesus would live his life and then step in and become the foolish builder and fall under the weight of all of the houses that we have built on sand. But he did it for us. This is the beauty of Jesus' life and cross and resurrection and ascension for us. Hopefully, it is the reason for our astonishment and our praise forever. So normally, I would pray for us, but instead, we're going to pray together a prayer. It's on the bottom of page 9 in your order of worship. If you could take it now, and we'll pray together. Almighty God, give us grace to be not only hearers, but doers of your holy word. Not only to admire, but to obey your doctrine. Not only to profess, but to practice your religion. Not only to love, but to live your gospel. So grant that when we learn of your glory, we may receive into our hearts and show forth in our lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.